iron a living. This shark swallow you whole. I value my neck a lot more than 3,000 bucks, Chief. Find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for ten. Ten thousand dollars for me by myself. For that you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. You yell shark, we've got a panel on our hands on the 4th of July. Pulled a tooth the size of a shot glass out of the rectal of the boat out there, and it was the tooth of a great white. A what? You're gonna need a bigger boat. Love to prove that, wouldn't you? Get your name into the National Geographic. Now, I'm not saying that this is not the shark. It probably is, Martin. It probably is. It's a man-eater. It's extremely rare for these waters. But the fact is that the bite radius on this animal is different than the wounds on the victim. Thank you for returning once again into the Jaws Obsession, where we are here to share with you, prove to you, convince you, or remind you that Jaws is the greatest movie of all time. Welcome back for episode 66, Chrissy Victimology. Victimology is the scientific study of crime victims, including the study of the relationship between victim and offender and the consequences and effects of being victimized. We've been watching Jaws for coming up on 50 years now. Is it natural to overlook certain details and clues the movie gives us about Chrissy Watkins? And in doing so, has she been characterized in error? Do we think about her as just a summer girl looking to have some fun? Or was there a darker tone to Miss Watkins that leads to her doom? Some fascinating discoveries that I... uh, I've been wanting to get to this episode for quite a while, and I felt that this was the right time. The older we get, our perceptions on life change. What would have been thought of as mundane or obsolete in our 20s might be more interesting and uh, fascinating in our 40s. As I have grown through this process of the Jaws obsession and the writing of the Book of Quint, my viewing of Jaws has certainly changed and the way I see the film. Uh, Has it done the same for you? Even as you've been listening to now 66 episodes of the Jaws Obsession, has your how has your viewing of the film changed? It's all fascinating, and I'm I'm seeing the movie now as a Zapruder film collection of stories where so much is happening, and I'm looking at the grassy knolls of Amity Island in the background. There's characters that are standing out that you see. In uh, later on in the film, there are other things happening on the on Amity Island, and it's just it's fascinating to me. I want to thank you for donating your time in uh, joining us here in the Jaws Obsession for episode sixty six to continue this trek into discovering what makes Jaws the greatest movie of all time. I have to extend a great big thank you 
to all the new listeners that have joined. There are always new listeners coming in, and this might be the first show that you've ever heard of the Jaws Obsession. This might be your first, this might be your introduction to what we're doing here. And I want to welcome you, and I want to say thank you very much for uh, joining us. And uh, when you look, when you start listening to the back catalog of 65 episodes built up to now, it's very exciting to have built something here that's resonating. And I see it resonating because July, this past July, was the greatest month for listenership to the show since we started in December of 2021. Uh, We had, of course, Shark Week was more popular than ever on the Discovery Channel. Some great documentaries there. Sharks have never been more popular than they are. Dr. Austin Gallagher was representing Beneath the Waves on a couple of the shark documentaries there. Remember, the Book of Quint raised funds to support Beneath the Waves through the limited edition 300 that have already gone out to readers. It was great to see Dr. Austin Gallagher working with Great Whites. The revival screenings. We had revival screenings all over the world, all over the United States of Jaws, uh, on streaming platforms, in theaters, and drive-ins around around the country. Great to see Jaws is more popular than ever. We really are in a nice time if you are a Shark fan, if you are a Jaws fan. And, and that has translated into people finding the Jaws obsession through all the podcast platforms around the world and jumping on, listening to the broadcast, and coming on board and following along, we uh, we just had a great month of July. So it seems like every month the, the show just gets uh, reaches reaches a wider audience. I thank everyone for being here and for lending your time. We're not going to waste it. We're going to get right into the action of the day here. Well, let's congratulate Mr. Ian Shaw and the crew over at the Broadway play now. The Shark is Broken is now on Broadway in New York City. Go to thesharkisbroken.com. I'll put that link in the description of this broadcast there where you can find ticket information. They have now have their official opening and they are going strong six days a week all the way to November 19th. So if you can go to thesharkisbroken.com so you can go see Mr. Ian Shaw portray his father, Robert Shaw, on the set, on a, on a beautiful set, which is a half a construction of the Orca. A wonderful play. I was able to catch it up in Toronto at the end of last year and I can't recommend recommend it enough. So congratulations to them for having a successful launch of that Broadway play. That is not easy. That is not easy to do. You have to realize that is the biggest stage in the land. That's over at the John Golden Theater, 252 West 45th Street, New York, New York. From the Jaws Obsession, wishing Ian Shaw and the crew of The Shark is Broken to break a leg for the run of that play. So moving right along, let's get into some emails here. We had Eric. Eric wrote in and he said, uh, just wanted to bounce a question, thought I have had for a while now off of you. During the scene aboard the Orca, when they are exchanging stories about their injuries, there is a brief moment where the chief lifts his shirt and looks down. It's like he is contemplating telling a story he has, but thinks better of it. Part of me always wondered if he had been shot in the line of duty in New York, and that was what finally pushed the family to leave. I know it may be a stretch, and maybe it was just that he had his appendix taken out, but I've always wondered nonetheless. The look on his face when he looks down seems to speak that he has a memory but doesn't feel like going down that road. Curious about your take on it. Just finished episode 43. Absolutely loving the podcast. 
Fingers crossed the book gets picked up soon. Really looking forward to reading it. The audio reading of chapters 16 and 17 got me hooked. Keep up the great work. Eric, thanks for writing in, Eric. As far as the Chief Brody scar, he's looking down. I've always took that as he's looking down at his appendix. And it is a nice little, it's like a comic relief point. Um, we have to look at that Carl Gottlieb was uh, came from writing on the Smothers Brothers comedy show, and he had a comedy comic background. So when you had uh, that, were they were exchanging when you have Hooper and Quint exchanging scars, and they're going back and forth and back and forth. Uh, Brody just he looks down. He just has that on the right lower right side. He has the appendix scar, but he's not going to obviously mention that because it's not as manly as a moray eel biting through my wetsuit or bull shark scrape me while taking samples or a dent in your head from Nako Nolans. I think if when I remember watching that growing up, I just remember all the adults laughing at that. As in that was a when you watched it with a major audience that they would laugh at that point because it was obviously it's more, it's telegraphed more um, when you watch it with an audience, because that was a bit of comic relief where people kind of snicker that he's, he goes, Oh, so uh, Brody's kind of feeling left out that he doesn't have any scars to share. And the one that he does is sort of a uh, medical procedure. However, Brody does have a history to him. And we, we do have, there are Easter eggs involved in the movie Jaws where we can extract information about Brody's history. And uh, that's for a later episode. We have to get to that one as well. But we do have a, we do have a list of stuff that we have to get through on the Jaws obsession. Drink to your leg. I'll drink to your leg. Okay. So we drink to our legs. <laughs> Yeah, so, we, yeah, we see him. He just kind of pulls his shirt up, and he looks at the appendix scar, and he's got that little um, he's got that little piece of rope that he's kind of twirling, practicing his, his overhand knots. But, yeah, that would definitely be just Brody looking at his appendix scar. Not the first time I was asked that, Eric. That, that's, that's actually come up before. But thanks for writing in. Also, thanks for the compliments on the show, the audio reading of chapters 16 and 17. He was talking about episode 37 of the Jaws Obsession, where we had a audiobook version of chapters 16 and 17 from the book. Thank you very much for writing in, Eric. And yes, we're going to keep up the great work here. We're trying to keep up the great work. As always, if you want to write into the show, you can write us here at jawsob2025 at gmail.com. Website is jawsob.com. And we also have a show notes over at our Telegram channel at jawsob. So if you go to telegram.com, jawsob will take you to our show notes. Also be sure to follow Instagram at Book of Quint for the latest news on the Book of Quint. At Book of Quint over at instagram.com. All these links will be in the broadcast, the description of this broadcast on whatever listening platform you are on. Another listener from Texas writes in. He said, um, hello, good sir. Just a quick thought on your theory that Brody has only been on the island in the job for a week. When they wake up, he asks why the sun didn't use to shine in the room. Ellen states, quote, we bought the house in the fall. This is the summer. Along with everyone else's comments, this is your first summer, isn't it? Quote, unquote. Why would anyone bother asking that if Brody had only been there a week or two, it would be obvious. But if he'd been there several months, that's a natural question because folks tend to forget how long someone's been there when it becomes habit. People are fine with coming up to him, asking him for favors, talking to him about not liking the water. Some people even call him by his first name. 
Brody also seems to know people's first names from the mayor to the ferryman and knows where places are. They are they all already know the terms for things on the island, quote, the pond, etc. That's all stuff that comes with familiarity. To me, that feels as if he's been there longer. He just doesn't know the summer stuff because he hasn't been through it. I know your reasoning was because the sun would have been shining through even the day before, but there could be many reasons for that. A rainy, cloudy early summer or a very late winter, it also doesn't mean that it's not something he hadn't noticed already and was just now commenting on it to Ellen due to their obvious late night and hangover morning. Just wondering what you thought about Ellen's quote, we bought the house in the fall comment. Anyways, keep up the good work. I've finally caught up and love all the updates and insights. Jack from Texas. Jack, thank you so much for writing in. I'm glad you pointed all these out because you are referring to the Polly's Printing, uh, episode 63, Polly's Printing. And in that episode where we talked about the origins, we sort of touched on the origins of the Amity Police Department from the way I am seeing it from the clues in the movie. But that was one of those episodes where there was so much information going out that I actually re-listened. I was like, oh man, I forgot to say this. I forgot to say this. And now that Jack wrote, wrote, writes in with these obviously good questions, it gives me a chance to actually double back to clarify that, yes, Brody has only been on the job for a week maybe even two, maybe a week and a half, but that is definitely his first week on the job. It's not the first time Brody was on the island because you have to think about it. There's there's certain things that we have to go through. We have to go through the tone of what is being expressed there actually shows that, that he is on the job for the first time. This is his first week on the job. As we wake up with the Brody family. Mom, I got cut. I got hit by a vampire. You guys are playing on those swings. What? Those swings are dangerous. Stay off there. I haven't yeah. fixed them yet. So that line right there, those swings are dangerous. Stay off that. I haven't fixed them yet. That tells me they just got to that house. They just moved in. They just started living in that house. This was their first time that they moved in. Why would he be saying that if they've already lived there for two, three months? You think the boys are just started playing on it if he said it two months ago? No, it can't be. This has to be that... I, those swings are dangerous. Stay off those. I haven't fixed them yet. So because he's been busy, obviously, going to work uh, and setting up the Amity Police Department as it is with the new filing system. So he's moving in. He's setting up new. He's establishing a larger Amity Police Department presence. He didn't have time to fix those swings yet. That type of dialogue uh, communicates to me that they're just getting acclimated to a permanent life on Amity. That doesn't mean that was their first time on Amity. That we have to keep that in we have to keep that in in mind. They would have bought the house in the fall. But in order to buy the house in the fall, that he would have had to interview for the job. So he probably interviewed for the job the prior fall. So that would have been the fall of 73. This would have been before he took his early retirement from the New York Police Department. Remember, in order to be chief. You have to reach detective. And and that was all discussed when we had for our retired detective Muggsy McGraw on the show back on episode 16 with the Jaws timeline explained that the uh, that that Brody would have had to have been a detective in order to be qualified as a chief. In order to actually interview for that job, he would have been a retiring up for retirement detective of 20 years 
on the force in New York City. So they would have came over, he would have visited Amity at least once before to interview for the job. When he's notified he's going to get the job, maybe go back and then look for a house and buy the house. This is what's interesting is now that would have been in the fall. The boys would have already started their school year in New York City. So because in America, in the United States, the school year goes from the fall to the summer, about September, uh, September to June. That's exactly when the school year is in the United States. Uh, and that's where the boys would have already been in school down there when we bought, when we quote bought the house in the fall. So they would have only stayed there maybe for a couple of weekends. And then they would have went back to go live in New York City and let the boys finish their school out. And then Martin would have taken the early retirement starting in 1974. And then they would have done the series of movements where you would then move your stuff over to Amity because Amity's hard to get to. So if you're moving, if you have a moving van or if you have a truck, it's going to be hard to get to that island. So you're going to want to do it in the least amount of trips possible. I don't see them going back many times, but when when Ellen later on at the dinner time, when she references uh, Martin stays in his car. Martin hates boats. Martin hates water. Martin, Martin sits in his car when we go on the ferry to the mainland. I guess it's a childhood thing. It's a, there's a clinical name for it, isn't there? Drowning. So she says that as in that when we go on the ferry to the mainland, that he sits in his car, it's, that's definitely more than one trip. So they've been on this trip to the mainland from Amity more than three times. So there has been an interview process. There has been a looking for a house process. There has been buying the house process. Then there's the moving process. This has all been going on between fall of 73 and now we're here at summer of 74. So in that time, of course, Martin Brody would have been on He's all he once he knows that he's going to be the chief of police and he's going to get sworn in and take that take that job. He's obviously going to walk around and and he will be introducing himself. He'll be looking at the lay of the land enough to know about the what is the pond and the ferry pilot, as well as all the other different members, uh, uh, some and and various other people. Obviously, the selectmen, the selectmen are uh, bad hat Harry. That's why he knows Harry. During the interview process, the selectmen would have been the ones to interview Martin Brody, along with Mayor Vaughn, and then that's when they would have decided to hire him. All very interesting stuff is that the kids would have been out of school at the beginning of June, which was a perfect time to then move the whole family up to Amity Island. See, so now the boys will be able to go to school starting in the new year in the fall of 74 on Amity Island. Therefore, it would make sense instead of wrenching them away from their friends and out of the school in the middle of a school year to move up to a shuttered Amity Island, which is hard to get to in the wintertime because it's it's literally shut down from the winter. It's, it's in the book Jaws, it said they what the town of Amity goes from a thousand people to ten thousand people in the summertime. I took that same tone with the island. Amity Island goes from 500 to 1,000 population and explodes in the summertime. So they necessarily would have had the house. They bought the house, but that doesn't mean they actually moved into the house in September. And that what I, that's what I do believe is the sun discussion. How come the sun doesn't used to shine right here? We bought the house in the fall. This is summer. 
So we bought the house in the fall. This is the summer, and Brody is nodding his head. How come the sun didn't used to shine in here? How come the sun didn't used to shine in here? So uh, I do believe that that, that definitely that's, that's them telegraphing. That would be them telegraphing to us that they stayed a couple nights in the house when they bought it. But then they had to get back to New York City because he had to keep working to finish out his year. So then he would take early retirement. The boys would have to get back to school in New York City. So they didn't stay very long in that house. They just stayed in the fall. Now, the reason why I say that they've only been here, and this is the first week, is that the longest day of the year is typically June 21st. June 21st is typically the longest day of the year in the New York City, Massachusetts, New England, Northeast area of the planet. Now, uh, why this, what, and according to our JAWS timeline that we've constructed, you can go over to our show notes and see that posted there. This day is the Chrissy attack was on the morning of the 27th. Uh, the Brodies are waking up on the morning of June 27th, 1974. So we are on the backside of the longest day of the year. So if he's noticing the sun on the 27th, if you think about it, on the 21st, which would have been the prior week, that sun would have been at its apex, and now it's moving back down. So now he's noticing the sun in the room. I'm not an astrologist, but it, that I believe that that sun now is shining in that room because we are on the bat, that back side of the uh, 21st. So that sun would have also been in there on the front side of the 21st as well. As, the, as it's going back the other way. And that's, I'm not an astrologist, but from what it seems to me is that that's signifying that they just moved there and it was not like that in the fall. The last time he literally spent the night there was in the fall. But now that the boys got out of school in early June and now they moved all their stuff and now he's sleeping in that room He's noticing on the 27th of June that why is the sun, why didn't the sun used to shine in here? And then she talks about the fall. He doesn't talk about the winter, doesn't talk about the spring, uh, nothing about like, you know, this, this, is a, this is obviously a conversation of a couple that's, he's obviously noticing new things because they just got to this location. And then we have this line by Ellen, which is a dead giveaway. Listen, Chief, be careful, will you? In this town? Hey. Listen, Chief, be careful. In this town, so why would she be, if they were already there for two, three, four months, why would she be nervous today? There's nothing that says, why is she nervous about him going to work? There's nothing that even indicates that she should be nervous if he's already, and then he says, in this town, as in like making a joke about how, They've just arrived here, and this is definitely not New York City. And that's, uh, that's one of those things where I just I, I sit there and I go, no, that, that definitely tells me that this is his first week on the job in Amity. And she goes, be careful, will ya? I don't think she'd be saying this, be careful, will ya, after three months of being there. It just seems to me that this is his first week on there, and that's where he's just kind of like laughing because he's like, in this town, there's nothing to be careful about. It's a, it's a, it's a walk in the park compared to New York City. That line does not fit. If we, are, if we were to believe that the chief has lived there, that they have been in this house for longer than a week or two weeks, then th that line does not fit. 
It just doesn't fit. These are all things that I wanted to get to in episode 63, but there is so much that I, I, you end up saying, oh, I missed that point. I, I could have, I could have driven that point home a little bit more. But all these, all these signs, if you, if you couple with what I'm listing off here with the, the, uh, the parts that we're playing about Polly in episode 63, Polly's printing, then we, we, we can really draw this conclusion that this is his first week on the job, but it's not his first time on the island. Let's not, we, we can't confuse that, that they have been here a few times before. But for the boys, it would be logical to move your family in summertime as they finish, as they wrap up their school year, as they wrapped up their, their grades in, in New York City, then move them over in the summertime so they can start a fresh year in a new school. It also makes sense that he would have finished his year out 1973 um, maybe started 1974, and then as he was retiring, taking his retirement, he uses his vacation days. We call that vacationing out. If you are in a union, he's getting out of the police union in New York City. That means he was vac- he would vacation out in early 1974, probably still get a paycheck uh, while he's moving and setting up shop and getting there in June. So then you had the mayor mentioning it's your first summer. You know you have you have Mr. Taft asking for a favor about the red zone on the beach. You have all people approaching chief right there. Uh, the fire chief, Polly says the fire chief wants to have a meeting. We have all of these people just coming right at him as in this is his first week on the job. Mr. Taft could have come with come at him for the red zone any other time, but he wasn't there in official capacity before the events of Jaws. We try to not really go into deleted scenes as because they are not canon to the movie Jaws. Uh, but the deleted scenes actually can point us in the right direction and give us some takes on what Spielberg or Carl Gottlieb were trying to do on set that they were trying to get a point, uh, they were trying to maybe make points or get, get tones across to the audience. And maybe they felt that certain scenes were redundant, so they lopped them off. This is one of the scenes that tells me that they were definitely, uh, that the, the Brodies were definitely just freshly moved to that island full time. Uh, there's a scene in the, on the Blu-ray with the deleted scenes with the Brodies. It's an extended morning at the Brodies in their kitchen. Ellen walks in with a bag of clothes, and this is what she says. Clothes are those. Yours, if you were a dog boy, where would you be? Mine. Yeah, I'm taking you to the thrift shop. It's Mrs. Vaughn's pet charity. <laughs> That's not going to help you this time. Why don't you look through that stuff, see what you want. It's mostly city clothes. Okay, guys, come on. So she says, do you want to look through those clothes? I'm taking them uh, through, I'm taking them to the thrift shop. It's Marsh, it's Mrs. Vaughn's pet charity. Uh, pick out what you want to keep. It's mostly your city clothes. And then Martin goes over to the bag and he starts looking through them. Hey, I wear this in the garden. Locked doors, garbage strikes. Dog dirt and muggers. So he says, I used to wear this to the garden, at, as in Madison Square Garden, uh, which is right there in New York City. Uh, garbage strikes, muggers, uh, and, and he basically, and then he says, ship it. In the directions in the screenplay, says, looking through bag, remembering. So he is freshly retired. They are just moved there, and she already has access to, uh, she's unpacking clothes, and she's basically sorting through clothes that he's not going to need anymore because he's not in New York City anymore. And that triggers some memories there. So 
The reason why they would have edited this, edited this out, Spielberg probably felt that I have enough in there already talking about why did the sun never used to shine in here before? Uh, stay off that those swings. I haven't fixed them yet. And then, hey, chief, be careful, will you? They already have enough elements in there to show that they are freshly moved in. He doesn't need to have the bag of clothes that Ellen tells him to go through because she's going to give them to the thrift shop, which is, which is, and she references Marsha Vaughn, Mrs. Vaughn, Larry Vaughn's wife. Uh, very interesting. So they felt that they didn't need that. So they lopped it off and Verna Fields would have edited that out because they have to keep the movie going. Uh, Jaws has some great editing, great pacing. And that was what they felt is that the, their instincts was the audience should know that the Brody family is pretty new to this island. So even though that's not canon to the movie Jaws, we can actually see that Steven Spielberg felt, okay, we're not going to beat the, the, the audience over the head with this fact that, these, that, uh, that they just moved here, they're just getting to the island, and this is Brody's first summer, first time in an official capacity as police chief on the island. But it's not their first time on the island, as in that they they've, were there before, obviously through the hiring process, the interview hiring, and then house purchase. One final piece to the puzzle here, I wasn't able to get to before at the hospital. Yes, yes. came home. Like to New York? No, home here. That right there is very telling in that, do you want to take him home back to New York? As in, they still have their New York home. That's how fresh they are to this island, is that they still have a home in New York. It's not like, do you want to take him home? Okay, yeah, back to, you want to go look for a house in New York? No, they still have their home over there. They haven't sold it. They probably have an apartment there. This was going to be their summer house, and then they were going to move here full time, so they haven't sold the home in New York yet. But that is a viable option at this point is Ellen could pack the kids up and they could move back to New York. It's still the summer and they could put the kids back in the same school that they were in. They can still reverse course here. So I have to still think that this would be on this June 27th, 1974. This is the end. This is the Friday, the end of the first week of Chief Brody being on the job in official capacity. That's what all signs point to. The Brodies were in a transition phase. That's definitely apparent here. They were definitely in a transition phase when the events of Jaws kick off. So thank you very much, Jack from Texas, for writing in, for allowing me to clarify some of the uh, comments that I made from the, uh, from the Polly episode, from Polly's printing. It was great to have a second chance to uh, add in some of these new elements that I wasn't able to get to in episode 63. Very interesting stuff. Love going through this stuff. Because, because the more we get to know these characters, the more we get to realize, we more, the more we get to enjoy Jaws, the, the more details that we extract from the film. I find this stuff fascinating, and I just I, I relish in the opportunity to go over some of these things. If you ever have any questions, you can email me here at jawsob2025 at gmail.com. We're not beyond constructive criticism here at the Jaws Obsession. Because you can't get better if you're not constantly analyzing yourself to see if you could do the job better. Allison writes in, she said, hi, Ryan, I do like your earlier episodes, but I do find that you are moving away from Jaws and focusing far too much on the book of Quint. I do wish you well with the project, which sounds fantastic, but recently a large majority of the episodes are taken up with the book of Quint. 
leaving less and less time discussing Jaws. Maybe the podcast should be renamed The Quint Obsession. Anyway, I have the utmost respect for your commitment, and I wish you well. Very best regards, Allison from Sheffield, England. Allison, I want to thank you very much. And I wrote Allison back um, in, indicating that, yes, it is. I have been noticing in, when I do these episodes, I've been trying to walk a fine line. Uh, there's a happy medium that I'm trying to find here with these episodes where uh, that where if I if I go too heavy on the, if if I have a heavy on the book of Quint topic, then I try to pepper in some emails and talk about Jaws. If I have a heavy Jaws topic, I might pepper in some news about the book of Quint. So I'm trying to walk that line where I don't go too far uh, to where I feel I'm not going too far over to the book of Quint side. Uh, because Jaws is fascinating. I mean, we have to we have to still stand we have to still stand by that Jaws is the greatest movie of all time, and there is still so much more. Uh, there's still much more land to be excavated in Jaws. Uh, we have topics that I have topics that I want to get to that I have not been able to. One of the things that I find difficult is that this is my only way of getting out to the fan base. There isn't any help from other fan sites to the point where I'm not able to get news out that might be important to the overall quest of what we are trying to do here with the Jaws obsession. And that this time that we have here in the Jaws obsession might be my only time to communicate to you if we have a, uh, a major announcement or if we have a breakthrough or if we have a guest on that has uh, read the book of Quint. What I wanted to establish with the Jaws obsession is I wanted to establish an expanded Jaws universe in order to investigate the intricacies of Jaws. And, and there's so much more information that we need in order to solve these little riddles that are in the, that are in Jaws that come up. I don't want to say they're inconsistencies. They're just things that are interesting. I wrote to Allison the example of Quint wearing an M51 field jacket that was issued in 1951, well, but the Indianapolis sank in 1945. So we have to assume that Quint stayed in the service from 45 to 51, whereas most of the survivors got out. So Quint would have had his 1945 era jacket. But that M51 jacket that he has his name stenciled on, he actually got that issued as a service jacket. So what was he doing in the time in the service between the Indianapolis sinking in 1945 all the way to 1951? And that's why I took on the vehicle, took on the book of Quint to supply the extra information would then make it more interesting as you watch Jaws that he's wearing that style of military field jacket, the M51. And that's where, that's where the book of Quint actually comes into play going forward after we get the release, the worldwide release of the book of Quint for the Jaws obsession that the book of Quint is then going to fall under the umbrella of the expanded Jaws universe. Once we have that worldwide release and everyone is able to get access to the book of Quint. So eventually on the show, not only am I going to be incorporating details from the book of Quint, which is going to be, there's going to be spoilers probably into next year, into 2024. There are details in the book of Quint that when told and when known make Jaws, a new experience. 
uh, you actually see Jaws in a different light. The reason why we come back to see Jaws and watch Jaws over and over and over again, there's more to the story and we just can't figure it out. We, we don't have the tools to actually fill in those blanks. We're also going to be touching on Jaws 2 because the Book of Quint ties in the events of Jaws 2 into Jaws even more. We can extract data from Jaws 2 as well as the Book of Quint in opening our the scope of the lens that we watch Jaws in. That's all going to have to come into play too. There's so much to get to. So in essence, with these last few episodes, we've had a, we've we've had we went heavy on the Quint stuff because we were we went we went into the origins of the USS Indianapolis speech in episode 64 and the revelation of Bob Quartermaster First Class Bob Gauze as being that direct inspiration to the Quint Indianapolis speech. That, that was an amazing episode. I was able to get to some emails about the 50th annual regatta and the history of Amity Island. So there, there is a fine line to walk, and I would just have, ask you to bear with me. And Allison's not the only one. I've received comments on YouTube. Maybe sometimes I go too heavy into Book of Quint that, that I lose some of the topic of the episodes. How do you feel? Because going forward, we're going to incorporate Book of Quint more into the Jaws obsession as well as Jaws 2, and we are going to be analyzing scenes in Jaws using that information that those bring together. We're also going to be analyzing Jaws 2. In essence, what this is going to become is the Jaws obsession. It really is the Jaws universe obsession, and that's what we're going to be looking at. Um, it's, it's exciting. There's a lot more topics to branch off on, uh, rabbit holes to go down and get lost in a lot of deep dives. And in, in words of friend to the show, Andrew Curry, when he gifted me the, uh, shark unpredictable killer of the sea, this, uh, antique book that was the origin of the, uh, Quint Indianapolis speech that we discussed in episode 64, Andrew said, thank you for creating the book of Quint and breathing new life into the gills of the Jaws universe. And I thought that was a great, the way he put that is that that's actually what we're doing here is we're trying to, uh, there, there's more going on and there's, there's more to Jaws than just a 50th anniversary digipack with a, with a, with a, with a badge and a special book. There's more to Jaws than just the materialistic reproductions and reissues of what we what many of us already have. That's where the heart of the book of Quint comes from is that it's out of pure uh it's out of pure respect and love for the movie Jaws. So um I hope that you stay with me and bear with me on the Jaws obsession. We will always be talking about Jaws and going back to the greatest movie of all time. But we need other little bits of information to fill in those gaps. And I don't want to call them plot holes. They're not necessarily plot holes. They're just little inconsistencies. They're, they're little things that make you go, huh, why five barrels on the orca? If Quint says he's only ever had one shark, he needed two barrels to wear him down and bring him up, we have to assume that all sharks only needed one barrel. And if he's saying it's incredible that three barrels go down, so really for 99.9% .9 of the sharks that he's hunted in his time, he's only needed one barrel, then why do you need a rack of five? There has to be a reason. Why do you need a rack of five? Why not just put a barrel in a shark? It wears down. You recover the shark. You recover the barrel. You reset. You go get another shark. Why five barrels? 
that has to be explained. And that's where the book of Quint comes into play. It supplies us with that background information to you. So you actually appreciate why he has five barrels there. You say, oh, it makes sense now. All right. It's, it, it, you know, there, there's, those are the little things that if, if Amity Island never had a shark problem, according to Mayor Vaughn or Meadows, the reporter, why do you have a resident shark hunter cruising around with five barrels in a retractable rack? And to his admission, all sharks only take one barrel. He's only ever had one shark that took two barrels to wear him down and bring him up. So why five? Isn't that interesting? So there, there, there is some dark history going on here. And that's where the Book of Quint is needed to supply that information. So then when you slap it all together, you just stand back and you go, whoa, there it is. Now the, when you see the complete picture, it's pretty amazing. It, it really is. And, uh, and I have, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. So thank you very much for writing in, Allison. I appreciate the constructive criticism. And as always, we are going to always try to keep this uh, Jaws obsession and Jaws as the main focus of the Jaws obsession going forward. And with that, let's get to a very Jaws topic. The topic of Chrissy Watkins, the first victim in the movie Jaws. Going off the website here from crimelibrary.org, victimology, the study of victims in criminal investigations. There's a quote here from Brent Turvey, quote, in the rush to examine a criminal's behavior, it is not difficult to become distracted by the dangling carrot of of that criminal's potential characteristics and forget about the value of understanding his victims, end quote. And then it goes on to s- describe victimology in its most simple form as the study of the victim or victims of a particular of- of a particular offender. It is defined as the thorough study and analysis of victim characteristics. When you look at the crime scene and that the crime that we witness at the beginning of, right at the outset from the beginning of Jaws, is a shark attack and it kills a young woman, Chrissy Watkins. If we study the characteristics of the victim, is it possible to find a reason why she is in that water at that time? And in doing that, can we get to know Chrissy a little bit more than what we are led to believe just on the face of watching the film? I think we can. And in to do that, we have to go through the entire first half of Jaws. Other than Brody, we have four different people reference Chrissy Watkins. We need to go into what details are extracted out of there. All of this research is not just for it's for the Jaws obsession. It's also to expand the Jaws universe. This information is going to play a lot more into events later on as we get into uh, 2024 and 2025. Um, this, is, uh, this is one of those times where I didn't feel I wanted to talk about this, but I felt that it's important to sometimes realize that even the smallest characters can actually lead to bigger stories. And that's what I'm focusing on going forward with an expanded Jaws universe. This episode might be one of those moments where we actually can see things evolving into something, uh, uh, into a larger picture, into, into into, um, a greater understanding of the Jaws universe. So let's get to it. We're going to use that term victimology, and we're going to study and try to understand Miss Watkins a little bit more. So we're going to go, we're going to work in reverse. We're going to end the discussion of Miss Watkins with reviewing the beginning of the movie, but we're going to start with the morning after she is attacked and killed by the great white in Jaws. 
So let's go with that. The first character that we have to look at, you know what? I'm going to start with uh, Matt Hooper first. I'm going to start with Matt Hooper first because Matt Hooper is the first to look at, um, is the first to get actually give her full name. So let's go to the beginning of the autopsy scene here. Let's show Mr. Hooper our uh, action here. Uh, victim identified as Christine Watkin, female location. Yeah, uh, uh, here's the way we have it. Probable boating accident. Yeah. Christine Watkins is her full name. And he is reading a, a coroner's report. He's reading the medical examiner's report on the clipboard there. As she calls herself Chrissy, Mr. Hooper gives us a full name. Chief Brody's office. The medical inspector. When Brody is at the typewriter and he is, uh, yeah. we can actually go frame by frame through there. So we can see that we have eyes brown, hair brown, age 24. As he scrolls that paper up, you can see that her age, she's 24 years old. And that how does Chief Brody get this information? He's actually going through her wallet. She has a pink leather wallet that is he's uh, that's on the desk that he's referencing when Polly walks into the office. Also, occupation student, build medium and complexion fair. Another little note on this police report that Martin Brody is typing up is her address. We see the end, it ends in a something road, so something road, Vineyard Woods. Now, I looked up Vineyard Woods. There, is, there isn't a Vineyard Woods, Massachusetts. There isn't a Vineyard Woods anywhere uh, of a town like that in the New England area. Um, not even in the United States. There is a resort called Vineyard Woods, but that wasn't around back in 1974. So, so this is something that is actually fictional, such as Amity Island. So this is part of the Jaws universe, is this Vineyard Woods where... Chrissy Watkins hails from. What is of note is Vineyard Woods is not Amity. She is not an Islander, okay? And we have other information that's going to back that up. But that's one of the first things we see from this, from the medical police type reporting. Now, the metrics that were shown is that she's 24 years old and she's from a place called Vineyard Woods. And her full name, Christine, is shortened for Chrissy. So her full name is Christine Watkins. So that's what Matt Hooper gives us in Jaws. He gives us that little detail, her full name. And now we're going to go to Tom Cassidy, the guy on the beach. Nobody saw her go into the water? Somebody could have. I've, I was sort of passed out. <laughs> you mean she ran out on you? No, sir. Tom Cassidy is a student from Hartford, Connecticut. She must have drowned. Look, I reported to you, didn't I? You live here? No, Hartford. I go to Trinity. My folks live in Greenwich. The folks were born here, right? Yeah, I'm an Islander. So he goes to Trinity College, which is in Hartford, Connecticut. And he talks about his folks were born here. What's very interesting here is that if he is a student at Trinity College, he is at tops 21 or 22 years old. Christine Watkins is older than Tom Cassidy. That's what the information we're seeing here is that Chrissy Watkins is 24. Tom is 21, 22 at the most. He could be 20. So she is older than him. Uh, keep that in note. That's very interesting. He talks about his folks there. They moved off and my dad retired. You an Islander? No, New York City. You here for the summer? Now, in the screenplay, 
this little exchange between Brody and Cassidy is a little longer. The, the screenplay describes Cassidy as, it says, Brody fingers the missing girl's shoes, purse, and clothes. In the daylight, Cassidy misconducts himself, wavering between inflated maturity and tear-blown adolescence. So there's a longer scene here, and that can be found on the Blu-ray on the deleted scenes. Christine, what? Um, Worthing, Worthington, Worthington. You don't remember her name? What's the name of those, uh, what's, uh, what's, what's that name for people who come over from the mainland? Uh, Taurus or Summer Dinks? That's it, that's it. So you picked her up at the ferry. How many were in the group? Mm, about 20 of us. Spent the night on the beach? Most of it. Nobody saw her going to the water? Somebody could have. I was sort of passed out. So we have him talking about he's trying to remember her last name. He couldn't remember her last name. He also says, Brody says, you picked her up on the ferry. And he says, yes, there was 20 of us. In the screenplay, it says, Brody asked, you picked her up on the ferry. Cassidy, I didn't know her. Brody, and nobody else saw her in the water. Cassidy, somebody could have. I was sort of passed out. So Brody says, you, you think she might have run out on you. Cassidy says, oh, no, sir, I've never had a woman do that. I'm sure she drowned. That's a little arrogance by Tom Cassidy, thinking that no one's ever going to run out on him. Like, no, that's not going to happen to me. She's got it. She must have drowned. She, no, no, uh, a girl wouldn't leave me on the beach. You know, it's a, yeah, that, that's what it, just, it fits with the arrogance that this, the description in the uh, screenplay is describing him as a young adolescent and arrogant. Certainly... Christine Watkins does not fit that description. She's older. She's already 24. She's 24 years old. She meets them on the ferry. So she's not part of this group. She is a loner at this point. In the book, in the book, Peter Benchley has them already as a couple, and they come out of a house that they're staying at. And they're they're holding hands and they're doing all stuff that couples do. In this, this is the first time meeting is that they've never met before. He doesn't even know her name, really. That has to be taken into note here when he says that, yeah, I'm an islander. My folks live in Greenwich. Your folks were born here, right? Yeah, I'm an islander. So when he says, yeah, I'm an islander, he's distinguishing a difference from Chrissy Watkins that Chrissy Watkins is not an islander. He would have said, I'm an islander just like Chrissy was. He would have added that information there. He would not have said, like, we've seen each other around before. No, no, no. She's definitely not from Amity Island. She's not an Islander. She's not from Amity Island, according to Tom Cassidy here. She's also older than him. He's admitting he's a student. We know from her driver's license that Martin Brody's typing in the report that she's 24. All things to keep into note here. There's also a little bit more information in the screenplay um, that this exchange actually talks about the group, the group that's on that beach that we open up Jaws with. Let's listen how Tom describes the group. You an Islander? No, we're You here for the summer? Yeah, me and some friends got a house. What are you paying? Oh, mm, thousand each. It's five of us. A hundred a week, food, booze. It's pretty expensive. It's not bad. So he says, um, I'm going to go back to the screenplay now. Brody says, um, you're here for the summer. Cassidy says, some friends and me took a house. Brody, uh, what, what do you pay for a place just for the summer? Cassidy says, a thousand apiece, something like that. There's five of us, and we each kick in a hundred a week for beer and cleaning, stuff like that. 
pretty stiff. He says, yeah, it's not that bad. In the screenplay, it's described as around a blazing bonfire, a group of young men and women, beer cans, or maybe a keg in evidence. The group is swapping sentimental alma maters, weepily singing Eastern Ivy League anthems, Dartmouth, Cornell, Harvard, Penn, etc. What that group is supposedly supposed to be are college students staying on the island for the summer. They came across on the ferry. And Cassidy's saying that's where they found Chrissy Watkins. So you picked her up at the ferry. How many were in the group? Mm, about 20 of us. So you picked her up on the ferry. How many were in the group? About 20 of us. That clue, even though it's not canon to the film, okay, it still is not needed because earlier in the movie, we see Chrissy sitting over by herself. We'll get to that a little bit later on. But let's all just keep that in mind that Tom Cassidy... He's a young student, as were many of those people all sitting there in that at, around the campfire on the beach. Chrissy was older than all of them. That's what I'm guessing at, is that because of the screenplay description uh, that they are college students and they're supposed to be singing alma maters of colleges, different Ivy League schools, that these are from wealthier families, and Chrissy is not part of that group. So we have to keep that in mind, that she's older than all of these kids. The next person that references Chrissy Watkins is Mayor Vaughn. Now let's go to see what Mayor Vaughn says. How does he reference Chrissy Watkins? Pardon me. Uh, a summer girl goes swimming. Swims out a little far. She tires. Fishing boat comes along. It's happened before. I don't think you appreciate the gut reaction people have to these things. Harry. So that's very interesting. He calls her a summer girl. So we know that she's not an islander. There is no attachment of Miss Watkins to Amity Island that they have in their record books. So she's off island. So he calls her a summer girl as in there's many girls that come over during the summer to uh, hang out with friends on the beach and stay in beach houses and take the summer off as in possible college students. I still think it's interesting that Chief Brody has her listed as a student as occupation. I think he's just defaulting to that because maybe that was one of the few IDs she had in her wallet was a student, an older student ID. I don't see her as a student at 24, that she was not really mingling with the students on the beach tells me that she was separate from them in not only age, but maturity level. Okay. Something was happening and that, uh, that we're not privy to. But Mayor Vaughn, he's automatically labeling her as a summer girl, as in someone who's just uh, comes over for the summer just to relax and have fun. And there's plenty of them, and they come out. One might swim out a little far, tire, and a fishing boat comes along, and then Meadows comes over and says, it's happened before. This has always been an interesting, great scene in the movie, because there's a lot of political jockeying going on here, where you have a tug of war over the narrative, controlling the narrative. That's what Mayor Vaughn's always been about, controlling that narrative. And Meadows is right back there. He's backing him up. But what we have is that that, that label, Summer Girl, is not just a throwaway label. 
what Mayor Vaughn is doing is he is pigeonholing her into someone who's obsolete. She's not an Islander. He's dehumanizing Chrissy Watkins at this point. And he's, that's how he's getting psychologically, that's how he is getting into Brody's head. As in, this happened before, and these things are going to happen. This is your first summer, you know. These things are going to happen, and you got to learn to control it. It's all very interesting. So now that we know that, we're, we're putting clues together here. Who is the fourth character that references Miss Watkins? You guessed it. That's Mrs. Kittner. Mrs. Kittner on the dock. Let's go to that part right here. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. <laughs> You knew it was dangerous, but you let people go swimming anyway. So she says, I just found out that a girl was killed here last week. Now that leads us to, uh, this would have been um, when Mrs. Kittner confronts Chief Brody. We have that on Wednesday, July 2nd. So that fits in here with a girl got killed here last week. That would have been June the 27th, Friday. So that would have been one, two, three, four, five days earlier. So if, uh, and that's very interesting is that she says, uh, a girl got killed here last week. I just found out a girl got killed here last week as it's just a girl, but she just found out. Remember, there's, there's a very interesting part where the Alex Kittner attack happens. And then we go to the meeting at the town, we go to the meeting, uh, town hall meeting where Mrs. Taft is arguing with one of the selectmen. She says, we don't even know there's a shark around here. As in, they classified Chrissy Watkins' death as a boating accident. That town hall meeting was on Monday, June 30th. So we know that the medical examiner filed it as a boating accident. We do know that the autopsy, Brody is saying, here, let's show Mr. Hooper our boating accident. He's saying it sarcastically. So we do know that they were sticking with the boating accident narrative all the way up until July 2nd. And that's when Hooper says this was no boating accident. So he starts calling it in and all of a sudden, uh, that word gets over to Mrs. Kittner later on and that she goes, I just found out a girl was killed here last week. How did Mrs. Kittner find out? Isn't that interesting? We got that. That's just so interesting. How did Mrs. Kittner find out that between, um, uh, so we know that it was still, it was still that, that they still classified Chrissy's death as a boating accident up until that, that morning when Hooper arrives. So somewhere between, and that leaked out somewhere where he was, uh, where, he, where Hooper says this was no boating accident, this was a shark. That leaked out somewhere. It must have been that the medical examiner's office had to amend their reports or that Chief Brody actually finalized his report and that got out to Miss Kittner somehow. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be interesting to know how that happened? What Miss Kittner reconfirms they were able to keep Chrissy Watkins' cause of death. They were also able to keep her, uh, possibly her next of kin, from being notified for quite a few days. One, two, three, four, four days. Yeah, so Mrs. Taft does, oh, that, everyone always thinks that, Miss, uh, that Alex is the first shark victim. 
That's what we don't understand. We know, as viewers, Chief Brody knows that this is the second shark victim. But the people on the island only think that this is the first shark victim. And that's why Mrs. Taft is going, she's seen a dent in her business and going, we don't even know if there is a shark. Are you going to close the beaches? So once again, Chrissy Watkins is marginalized and, and her real cause of death is not known all the way up until five days after she's killed. And that can only be done if she's not an islander, if she doesn't know anybody on that island, if she has no relationship to Cassidy, if Cassidy doesn't even know her last name, she's there for some reason. Why is she there? So now with all that background information, all that third party, the secondhand information that we've extracted from the other characters in Jaws after the death of Chrissy Watkins, now let's go back to the beginning of the movie and let's watch for some details with what we already found out. Can we now extract some more details out and draw a better picture into the victimology behind Chrissy Watkins and see if we can find the value in understanding the first victim of the Great White in Jaws? So immediately we start off with uh, that they're around the campfire, but we know these are all college-age students, college students. According to Cassidy, according to the screenplay, we know that they're supposed to be singing alma maters, but this gentleman is having a guitar solo. But what we do notice right off from the bat is that everybody is paired up. You have couples, you have friends together, you have people that know each other. Most people are there, They kind, everybody kind of knows each other. They're discussing... They've already met each other on the ferry ride over. And then we come to Tom Cassidy with his back to everybody. He's sitting over by the keg of beer. He's had one too many. He's got his Falstaff beer cup, smoking a cigarette. And he's looking over at a loner that's sitting off to the side. We have to remember the age of the people that are in question here. These are his college friends, and they all put their money together, and they have a house over here. So a lot of them are also friends that came over, and they're all staying at a nearby house. And then we get the first image at two minutes and one second into the movie. We get the first view of Chrissy Watkins. She's sitting off to the side by herself, and she is smiling. She smiles over at Tom Cassidy. Tom Cassidy smiles back. Now right there, at two minutes and nine seconds. If you play that part over again, there is a slight screech of a seagull and a crash of a wave, and Chrissy looks over to the water. That's very important. Let's run that back one more time. He smiles at her. And then she looks over, she hears the seagull and the crash of the wave and looks over. Remember, I am playing this with the audio of the original stereo sound. She looks over at the ocean. The ocean is calling her at this moment. That's her priority here. She came over to Amity to run away from something. She's not coming over here to find a boyfriend. She's not coming over here to have a relaxing time. She isn't coming over here for long term. She left on short order. And she is over here for one thing and one thing only, and that's the ocean. If you look at the wide shot, the establishing shot, as Tom Cassidy walks over to Chrissy and he kneels down in the sand and they have a few words, you can see all the people have, they have bags, extra clothes, they have blankets, 
they have packed for a long stay. They have packed uh, not not necessarily for camping. The guy brought his guitar. They brought stuff, and they're going to go to a house and sleep the night. So there's a lot of there's a lot of belongings. But what does Chrissy Watkins have? She has nothing. She only has her light blue blazer. She's wearing a sweater, jeans, shoes, and she has a small purse. That's it. There's no other bags around her. She doesn't look like she was even eating. She's just sitting off to the side. Now, remember, she's 24 years old. The fact is, is that Cassidy never says she was a student. He never says, oh, yeah, she goes to this school. He just met her on the ferry. That's it. And he never really even talked to her. She's just seen her attach along with the group. But because she's separated, she's almost looking at everybody in a nostalgic sense that all these kids are still in college, that this is their summer away from whether it was sophomore or junior year or even senior year. But this was, she is beyond that because she's older than everybody here. And that look off to the water means that that's her concern. That's what she came out to Amity for. I describe Amity Island as uh, the outlier island where people run away to get to. They're running away from something. Is it possible that Chrissy Watkins was running away from something, leaving a part of her life, and that she just did it on a whim just to come out here? This is obviously the first time that Tom Casty is engaging her in conversation. This is his first time actually approaching her, just because of the exchange looks that they don't really, they don't know each other up to this point. So after a few words, Chrissy immediately gets up and she starts running up the hill. Tom Cassidy goes, what's your name again? She says, Chrissy. So that means that's what he was talking, that's what he asked her down at the hill. He asked her her name. She says, it's Chrissy. But then she gets up and just starts running. What's your name again? Chrissy. Where are we going? Swimming. Slow up. Slow down. I'm not drunk. Slow down. Wait. Now there's something interesting. We have to, if we if we remove ourselves from the moment, um, where we actually on the face it looks like Chrissy's there to just have fun. It's not because what's happening here is there's no hint of self-preservation. There is no hint of thinking that she's going to come back. Chrissy Watkins starts running. She removes her jacket and her purse and she throws it on the top of a fence, and she keeps running. Then she's removing one shoe and she throws it. She doesn't go to one area and remove all her stuff in one place. She's just throwing it left and right. There's nothing that signifies that this is a passionate run, uh, run of passion or anything like that. There is something else going on here that she is absolutely just uh, throwing caution to the wind and throwing stuff everywhere. I don't think she was like this in normal life. I don't think she went over to Amity and said in the, in the middle of the night after midnight, I'm going to start throwing my stuff everywhere and I'm just going to run into the water. Uh, and I don't care who knows it. I don't care. I just think this is, she was acting on impulse because there is something much more going on that she is running from that something happened in her life, that this is a, almost a destructive moment with Miss Watkins is that she is not really thinking about preserving her well-being. She just threw away her wallet and her purse now she's throwing her shoes. She doesn't even care where they are. She's just going to start running. And I understand that it seems like she's there to have fun, 
but she's older than Cassidy. There's something more going on here. And she's never met these people before. She doesn't know who they are. She's not trying to make a good first impression, obviously. And I know this was a different era, but back then, even back then, uh, girls would have friends they would travel with. Friends would watch out for them. Uh, they would have a support network of some sort. You don't go off by yourself and put yourself in this situation unless there's some trouble happening. I'm coming! I'm definitely coming! Whoa! Hold up! What? So Chrissy enters into the water, but... She removes all her clothes, and we don't even know where they are. They're just everywhere. She doesn't have a pile on the beach where she plans on going back to. There's a small detail here that I want to refer to the Jaws novel by Peter Benchley. I'm, I'm reading out of the paperback novel on page 35. In this chapter, on page 35, Brody is talking to Meadows regarding uh, Meadows talks about, quote, about the Watkins thing. He says, yes, I agree that's what killed her, but there are a few things I am not so sure of. Brody says, like what? Meadows says, like why she was swimming at that time of night. Do you know what the temperature was at around midnight? 60. Do you know about what the water temperature was? About 50. You'd have to be out of your mind to go swimming under those conditions. I know the novel is different from the movie, but what Peter Benchley is describing is fairly accurate that the waters off of Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, uh, and of course Amity Island, uh, in the New England area, the ocean water is going to be 50 degrees in mid to late June. It's, it's just going to be cold. And he says you'd have to be out of your mind to go swimming. This is never even addressed by Mayor Vaughn or Meadows or anyone in the film, that it's extremely cold at night. Chrissy's wearing a sweater. All the people are wearing sweater and coats. All the college students are wearing sweaters and coats around the campfire. There's a campfire. They're keeping warm. That ocean water is freezing at that time. Over on a bay, you would have a little bit more pleasant experience. But this is freezing cold water, and she just dives right in. She's not looking for a relaxing swim. She's not looking for a romantic escapades in that temperature of water. She's laughing because she's running and she's finally feeling free from something. What is she being freed from? What is she feeling that she's running away from and that she's laughing at finally being free? Cassidy is running along and we're all with Cassidy. We think that this girl just wants to have fun. It's not. She has a completely different purpose for going in that water. And Cassidy is just too drunk to realize that. And he's like, oh, and he's, I'm going to go swimming too. So he's struggling to get all his clothes off. But uh, Chrissy's already entered the water, 50 degree water at that. So we see Miss Watkins swimming. We know she's, a f she can handle herself in the water. She's an accomplished swimmer. She's naturally swimming. So she's grown up around water. So now that now that she actually entered the water, now she's actually going to turn around and reference Cassidy, come on in the water. That's interesting. She's kind of almost sobered up from this freeing feeling that the ocean gives her at that moment because it's so freezing cold. And she turns back, come on in the water. She's swimming way far out. 
And I think this is just the allure of the ocean. There's something else on her mind, and she's just laughing at the young boy, the younger guy over there, the young, the young man who's anywhere from three to four years younger than her, struggling to get in the water. So she ignores that and keeps swimming because Cassidy's not the main purpose. The main purpose is her getting in that water. What was she running from? So when the shark attacks, you do hear that little bit of a shiver from her breathing. That shows you that that water's freezing cold at that moment, um, at night, especially on the ocean side. This is not a bay we're talking about. This is South Beach. So the few lines of dialogue that we can extract from her when she's being attacked is God help me and it hurts. She's being thrashed around in the water. The key is right here where the shark brings her to the, where the shark uh, drags her through the water and she's carried to the buoy. Okay, so she says something right there. She says something to herself as she's as she hits the buoy and she's holding on for her life. What does she say? Let's listen to that again. Okay. I had to isolate this into the audio and I listened to this many times over trying to extract every syllable I could hear. So we're going to pump the volume up and listen to this quite a few times and let's see if we can hear what is Chrissy saying in her final moments. Oh my God. What do you think that is? Let's go into slow motion. Now let's listen to the let's let's slow her voice down and let's try to extract exactly what she's saying. What I can hear her saying is, open your eyes, are you abandoning me? Open your eyes, are you abandoning me? That's what I'm hearing coming from Chrissy Watkins. Oh God, open your eyes. Are you abandoning me? Now, is she saying this to God? Is she saying this to Tom Cassidy, who's laying on the beach? Open your eyes. Are you abandoning me? Is that what she's running from? Was she abandoned by someone? And that is what is on her thoughts and mind in the final moments of her life. And then gruesomely, she's dragged from the buoy. Oh God, please help me. God, please help. Open your eyes. Are you abandoning me? It fits with how I see Chrissy Watkins. And maybe you do as well in her moment of begging for help and uh, uh, pleading to God, 
that she is also talking about abandonment. Abandonment trauma is the fear or anxiety of people you are close to leaving you. People struggling with abandonment fear may have trouble building healthy relationships. Um, I'm reading an article from verywellhealth.com. And it's possible that what I'm seeing is that there are Chrissy Watkins, she was experienced, and it's what's called an avoidant attachment. People with an avoidant, avoid attachment style struggle with closeness and intimacy. Maintaining independence is often very important to them as there is the risk of getting hurt if they allow themselves to get close to other people. So once she was approached by Tom Cassidy, she immediately gets up and runs and runs to the ocean. Maintaining independence is very important and there is a risk of getting hurt if they allow themselves to get close to other people. So there's an avoid attachment style that Chrissy Watkins is experiencing. And that is why the word abandonment in what it sounds like comes out from her in her final pleads of life is that that is what has happened what did she abandon or who abandoned her in order to make her run away and get on a ferry and go to the farthest island possible on that morning of June 27th, 1974, for her to run into 50-degree water, something completely illogical, not comfortable, very painful, quite actually, and for her to be in the place where she gets attacked and killed by the shark, the victimology of Chrissy Watkins shows that there was more to the reason of why she was there than we might have realized if we look at the details inside Jaws. Now, going further into an expanded Jaws universe, is it possible to add some key elements and to discover other elements that will draw a bigger picture? We will actually see Chrissy Watkins as a sympathetic character not just because she gets attacked and killed by a shark, but because she was running from something and the cause of what, the, of what put her in that position actually becomes more powerful. And it would be really interesting to explore that cause. I failed to mention the role of Chrissy Watkins is played by the wonderful Susan Backlinney, who was only 27 years old as a stunt woman specializing in swimming work. She was also an animal trainer. Without her convincing performance, would Jaws have been as great of a movie as we know it to be? So Miss Backlinney's performance is uh, one for the ages here. And it's so convincing that even as I watch now, even in doing the research, I see these characters as real people, real lives inside a real universe. And it should be noted that it's played wonderfully by the actress Susan Backlinney. Um, the clues that she gave in her performance uh, lead us that, that show that there is much more depth to the character of Chrissy Watkins than we might realize. Thank you very much for listening and exploring the furthest regions of the expanded Jaws universe with episode 66, Chrissy Victimology. Show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little think about an hour ago where it's gotten right to my head. Wherever I may roam, by land or sea or home. Well, that was a heartbreaker of an episode. That's one of those episodes that just sneak up on you. I didn't realize where we were going to go with that until I started doing the research. And that's one of those amazing things about Jaws is that the more you look inside the details, the more amazing a film it actually becomes. You can always
The movie Jaws is copyrighted property of Universal Studios. Any references and sampling from the movie Jaws in this episode is intended to fall within Section 107 of the Copyright Act. The copyrighted materials are fairly used for the purposes of criticism, comment, reporting, teaching, and research. The materials used here are protected by the Fair Use Guidelines of Section 107 of the Copyright Act. All rights reserved to the copyright owners. So remember to, if you like this episode, remember to follow it on whatever podcasting platform you're listening on. And if you could, give us that five-star review. Click that thumbs up button because all those reviews do help in pushing the algorithm to get the show out to other listeners that might not know we exist. It's great. Jaws Obsession is growing every day, and it's great to have new listeners. So if you could help us do that, that would be surely, surely special. Also, you can follow Book of Quint at Book of Quint over at Instagram.com for all the latest news. We're expecting some big announcements very soon. Thank you very much for listening. Until next week, farewell and adieu and show me the way to go home.